If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study through the Word. So Jesus is on his way to the cross. He is headed towards Jerusalem. And, and you remember that as a nation, the nation now has rejected him as the Messiah. And so Jesus is continuing now to press uh, upon the hearts of every single person that you must make a decision yourself of whether or not you desire to enter into the kingdom of God. And as we have seen him teach them now to the masses, Jesus is revealing the truth of God's heart to the people. You'll remember that last time we had seen where there were the three parables that reflect now the heart of the Father. There was the conception that God stands afar off, back, and with his arms crossed, and only the righteous can come <laughs> and make an approach to him. But the reality is, is that God has been initiating a love relationship with every single person, that he created you, that he loves you, that he has been searching for you and seeking to rescue you from, from the very first breath that you took. We saw the parable of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one. We saw the parable of the five coins and the widow who lost her coin and the thoroughness of, of how hard, how desperate God is seeking after you. And then we saw the lost son and the joy of restoration of relationship. And, and that is God's desire. And, and so Jesus is revealing this reality. God loves you. God has always loved you. God is not waiting for you to clean up your life so that now you can become lovable. God loves you because he made you. And because he made you, he wants to clean you up and he wants you to be in fellowship and he wants you to be in relationship with him. But you have to choose that. And you remember that the next parable that he gave was a parable about using the time that you have right now in this life to be able to secure your eternal destination. The parable was the parable of the unjust steward. And it was the, the parable of the steward over his master's house. And, uh, and he had not been faithful. And so the master, when he discovered it, told him that he's going to remove him as the steward over his house. And you'll remember that, uh, that now he said, what, what can I do? What should I do? How am I going to secure my future knowing that I have just a little bit of time left as a steward over my master's house? And you'll remember what he does is he grabs all of the creditors that, that now his master has money that has been owed him by. And he says, how much do you owe? And he slashed all of their bills so that now once he is put out of that stewardship, he has got all of these favors to be able to call in. And when the master discovered it, he marveled at the shrewdness now uh, of his money manager. And he said that, the, uh, that the, the men of this generation are more shrewd uh, in their dealings uh, than, than we are. And so what was Jesus referring to? He's talking about your time is short, thinking about long term, the future, and what are you going to do right now? to be able to secure that in future. And, and Jesus, once again, talked about competition in the heart. He said that you can't serve two masters. You've got to make a decision 
Are you going to let your flesh rule over you and keep you out of the kingdom? Or are you going to serve God and enter into the kingdom? You'll remember that Jesus then talked about the, the reality of what happens to a person whose soul is separated from God. And he told the account of the, of the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember how they both died and, and now they went to Hades. And we talked about Hades and how Hades has two compartments and there is a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom, there's a great gulf, and then there's a place of torment. Everybody who died in faith, everybody who had trusted God and believed God, they now were in that place of comfort. And everybody that had said no to God, and did not want relationship and fellowship with God in this life, they were on the other side. They are separated now from God's love, but they are waiting ultimately for the judgment where they will stand before God. But they are going to stand before God at that great white throne of judgment. And, and so we see here that, that now Jesus talked about how this rich man who had all of the niceties in this life, but he had said no to God his entire life. And now suddenly he is experiencing the reality of what separation from God actually means. And he is in a place of torment. And he looks over at Lazarus, who was a, a poor beggar who used to be outside of his gates, living off of the, the crumbs from his table. And he says, Father Abraham, please send him over to me. I am in torment. May he just put a drop of cold water on my tongue. And, and you remember that Abraham said, God has fixed the distance between these two. And no one can cross over from either direction. And suddenly this man recognized that he had brothers. And his brothers, his five brothers, were all following in the same path as him. All of them were saying no to God and just filling themselves up with themselves. And he recognized that they're going to follow me right here to eternal torment. And he says, Father Abraham, please send somebody to my brothers to warn them so that they get off of the path that they're on and they don't follow me here. And Abraham said, they have the revelation of truth. They have the law and the prophets, and that's what they've been given that tells them the truth. And, and so he says, yes, but if someone would actually rise from the dead and go to them, they would believe that. And he says, if they will not believe the law and the prophets, even if one should rise from the dead, they will not believe him either. And Jesus was speaking prophetically there of, of himself, who would rise from the dead to give testimony to the reality of the truth of the law and the prophets. And there are many today who just simply reject it. As we come to this next chapter here, we see that Jesus, thinking about those people that, that are separated, he, he now is going to... Uh, to give the, the, the teaching of, uh, on offenses and, and those that now are keeping people from entering into the kingdom. And then we're going to see that Jesus is going to come across 10 lepers, 10 people that are stricken with the 
incredible disease. They've contacted, uh, contracted leprosy and they are gathered together, living on the outskirts of society. And they're going to call out for mercy, that the Lord would have mercy on them. And we're going to see Jesus' interaction with them. And so we begin here in this 17th chapter, beginning in verse 1. And, and it says, Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. And so he's talking now, these offenses that he's talking about is opposition to the kingdom of God. Jesus has come, presented his credentials uh, now. And when we see the religious leaders, it was their responsibility to vet the Messiah. They knew the scriptures and, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. And then they were to point the whole nation to the embrace of the Messiah. Jesus came and he presented his credentials and they said, you are not the Messiah. And what they did is they told the whole nation, don't follow after him and and so we see the offenses that Jesus is talking about here is those who are actively working against the kingdom of God. He says those offenses are going to come. Why? Because as long as Satan is still roaming around, he is the one that is behind the opposition to the kingdom of God. So the offenses are going to come until Satan is bound and destroyed. But Woe to those who are the instruments of the Satan that are seeking to harm God's people, God's children, and to those that are wanting to enter in and are now being prevented by these people. God is jealous over his children. And we see here that it says in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. When you touch God's children, you are now messing with the heart of God. And God says that he will protect his children. And so know that you're a child of God and know that you are loved by God. In verse 3, he begins now to talk about the community of believers, talking about those who are working in opposition to the community of believers, but now talks about as he is instituting the church, knowing that the apostles are going to be taking and building now the, the church, how are we to get along with one another? As the family of God, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, and, and how are we to deal with offenses and, and divisiveness? You see, God's desire is, is that we would fellowship together and that there would be great unity, unity in our marriages, unity in our family, unity in the fellowship of the body of Christ. And, and so God is seeking to pull together, hold together, to strengthen together. The enemy is seeking to blow apart, seeking to cause division in every area, in every relationship in your life. There is an active agent that is seeking to isolate you and to break down every single supportive, loving, healthy relationship that's in your life. And so how do we overcome this, this oppositional force that is in our life? And so Jesus now is going to speak on that. He says in verse 3, take heed to yourselves. Now take heed means here is a warning. I want to warn you about something. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
So here we see one of the mandates that we have in the scriptures that when somebody offends you, that you have a directive from the Lord to go and to tell them that that hurt you. You see, so oftentimes we are uncomfortable with confrontation. And we would rather suffer from that wound than we would to go and confront that person and to tell them that they have actually hurt us. But here's what I want you to know. When you have an offense, when you have been hurt, you are either going to take that wound and bring it to that person and pull it out of your heart so that they can now say they're sorry and there can be restoration and forgiveness. Or if you never tell them about that wound and you hold it in, listen to this, you empower that wound to keep on wounding you the rest of your life. You see, every single unresolved conflict that you store up Every time you see that person, you remember. Every time you think of something, it hurts you again. So not only did it hurt you once, but you keep it alive in your heart to let it keep on hurting you and keep on hurting you. And when you take and take all of these offenses and let them be in your heart so that as you move through, you keep getting hurt all the time. This is not the way that God wants you to live. He wants you to disarm those wounds so that they stop hurting you. And the only way that you can disarm them is to bring them to the person that offended you and to tell them, hey, you know what? Yesterday, yeah, that hurt when you said to me this. And what did you, what did you actually mean by that? So what exactly is uh, an offense? You see, sometimes God gives us the, the grace to overlook areas in a person's life. In other words, we don't have to need to go and confront every single person on every single thing that they do that annoys us. That would be tedious. <laughs> but you see, there are times that we have the grace for bad behavior in others where it doesn't even bother us, you know? You come home and they're hungry and they're angry, they're hangry. <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, all you need is a plate of pasta and you'll be all right, you know. And, and it's like, and though they're behaving badly, you just know they're tired and crabby and having a bad day. And it doesn't offend you uh, at all. And so you just have the grace to let those things roll right off of you. But then there's the offenses that, that you kind of try and just brush off. And, and you say, oh, they just had a bad day. They just this, they just that. But the next day, you know what? It's still there. And it still hurts. And you try and brush that off, and, and it won't be brushed off. And it stays there. And it's a burr. And now you're either going to let that burr stay there and add it to all the other burrs that are already in your heart that are going to allow you to keep on being wounded by memories and thoughts and situations and words, or you're going to start taking those burrs and pulling them out and going to the person and say, hey, you know what? Ouch. That hurt. And so oftentimes when you do that, the other person goes, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. That's not what I meant by that. And please forgive me. And, and you find out that it was a, a misunderstanding or there was an insensitivity on their part. And, and, and what ends up happening is, is that they own it. They say they're sorry. And there is forgiveness that is now given. And you now move forward. So I want you to know that, that every single burr, listen to this, every single conflict that's resolved creates an even stronger relationship. Every single 
conflict resolved creates a stronger, healthier relationship. And every single unresolved conflict that's allowed to just sit there continues to erode the relationship. And so every single offense is either going to build your relationship tighter or it's going to be eroding the relationship. And God says, so offenses, they're going to come. They're going to come because we're sinners. Amen? And as much as we don't want to hurt one another, we, we will hurt one another. So it's not a matter of trying to get the other person to never hurt you. It's a matter of what you do with the hurt and whether you're going to use that hurt to build a stronger relationship by confronting it and going to that person or whether you're going to harbor it and run away from it and allow it to continue to hurt you. And so Jesus said, listen, my children, I love you. You have to get this right. Because this is the essence of unity and this is the essence of community. So when someone hurts you, you have to go and tell them, hey, I got hurt by that. And then it says that, that if he repents, then you forgive him. And you say, but how many times do I have to forgive? He says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And so they say they're sorry and you forgive them and then they do it again and, and you're hurt again and then you say, say you're sorry and we forgive. And then, you know, the third, fourth, fifth time you say, that's it, I'm sick of this, I'm done with it, I'm not. I want you to know there's no such thing as that. <laughs> Isn't that a bummer? <laughs> you never know how to say that's it, I'm, done. I'm sick and tired of this. this, 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 this. It, why? You see, we're to continue to grant forgiveness to others because, and listen, because there is no limit to the forgiveness that we receive from God. See, God never says, oh, you know what? You used your quota. <laughs> I'm done with you. <laughs> and so since he doesn't give us a quota, we're not allowed to put a quota on, on somebody else. Jesus here uses the quota, what, of seven? No, wait a minute. You have to understand that in Jesus' day, this is what the rabbis taught, that if you forgive a man three times, you're a perfect man. <laughs> like that's, that's as much as you could ask of anybody, three times. And so Jesus doubles it and adds one, you know, seven in a single day here. And so that seemed, listen, that seemed absolutely monumental and impossible to the apostles who their entire life had been taught that three is the most. I mean, a perfect man will forgive three times. And when Jesus now tells them to do the impossible, which is to be long-suffering and to forgive and to continually forgive and to continually to work on your relationship towards unity. When Jesus tells them that that's the heart of God and that's the standard of God, their instantaneous response is, that's impossible. I can't do that. And so look at what they say, verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. That, there is no way you have got to increase my faith in order for me to be able to swallow that as the standard of our relationship. And, and so Jesus then said to them, so the Lord said, if you have faith as a what? As a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. He says, if you have the faith, just the tiniest amount of faith, 
He says that, that it can uproot a mulberry tree. Now, mulberry trees are indigenous there in Israel, and they're large trees. They grow to be about 35 feet tall, big, enormous trees. But what they're really known for isn't the height of them. They're known for their root structure. The mulberry tree has the deep, deep roots, uh, very strong. And, and because of their strong root system, they live a long time. They can live up to 600 years, these, uh, these trees uh, over there. So they're known for their deep rootedness. Now, what did Jesus and just talk about forgiveness? Unforgiveness and bitterness. And what was he saying? That unforgiveness and bitterness can entrench itself into a person's heart into their life, into their soul, like a mulberry tree does into the ground. You see people all the time, and you meet them, whose families have blown apart. I don't talk to them anymore. I haven't talked to them in 20 years, and they said this, and I said this, and I'm not, we don't see them anymore, and we don't like them, and we see all of these broken relationships, and we see bitterness an unforgiveness that has entered into their soul like the roots of a mulberry tree. And Jesus says that if you have faith, that can be pulled out, even, even that stuff that goes all the way down into an entrenched into a person's soul. Notice that he says that it's not the quantity of faith but it's the quality of faith, just a mustard seed. See, there's no power in faith itself. Faith is the conduit to the power of God. See, faith is the access to the power of God, and the power of God is the power that can pull a mulberry tree right out of your heart, right out of your life, and it just needs a tiny bit of access. That's how great God's power is in a person's life. And so, God's desire is for you to access him so that you can what? So that you can be set free from the things that have put you into bondage. And listen to this. Unforgiveness is a bondage for a person. Because when that heart is bound up by a mulberry tree's root system, it's not capable of, of loving the way that it was created to love. God wants your heart free, free to love, free to be in communion and relationship, free to nurture and to, to express the incredible sense of acceptance and love. And so here we see that God commands that we just need to be connected to him by the slimmest tiniest of margins. The mustard seed is the, is the smallest of the seeds. And and now after he has talked about how we have now access to this incredible power of God through faith, he now makes sure that we recognize that this incredible power of God isn't something that we're to use in our own life to take and, and to live for our flesh and to try and use the power of God to be able to exalt self. And so... He immediately lets us know that, that while we have access to this amazing power of God through faith, he says, but you're still a servant. So just remember, you're a servant of the Most High God. And, and your obedience to God 
you're trusting him and living out his will in your life, that's just your just and reasonable service. Don't think that, uh, that you now are gonna be rewarded because you have followed God's instructions. God has followed, given you instructions so that you can live a wonderful quality of life. And the quality of life that you live in obedience to him is the reward for obedience. But recognize that, that you are to bring glory to God, not glory to self. So this power of God is not to glorify self, but it's to glorify God. And so we see that immediately here he gives the teaching upon a servant in recognizing that we're servants. I want you to know the prosperity doctrine and the name it, claim it, they, they take their theology from the mustard seed faith and the power of God, but they take the power of God to then exalt self. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to live this luxurious life. God wants you to live this flesh and filled, self-indulgent life because you've got the power of God to, to be able to access it. But they take it out of context because it is framed to write with the warning right afterwards that, that remember that you do have access to the power of God, but you're a, you're a servant of God. You're a servant of God. And so verse 7, And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? The question is, who is the Lord? Are we directing God or is God directing us? And so, verse 10, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. And so likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Paul writes, to offer yourselves up as a living sacrifice, which is your just and reasonable service, that we now crucify our flesh. We don't exalt our flesh. We don't take the power of God to exalt our flesh and to use it to get everything that we've ever wanted in our life to make our life comfortable and happy. We use the power of God to set us free to what? To bring glory to God and to exalt God. And so the will of God in our life, the power of God is for the will of God in in our lives, not the power of God for our own purposes and for our own means. And so Jesus, once again, helps us to recognize and to understand our relationship and the access to power that we have in our life, but ultimately to bring glory to him. Now it happened, verse 11, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And then as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men, who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Oh, the suffering of this fellowship of lepers. Leprosy was feared amongst all of the diseases in Israel because it cost you everything. One day you had your normal life and you were living in the next thing you know, a leprous spot is confirmed that it's leprosy, and instantly you were put into isolation. 
you were removed away from your family and your loved ones, from your job, from your friends, from your faith community, from everybody that you had relationship and connection with, you are suddenly yanked out and cast out of society, living now on the fringe. And you were an outsider looking in at what you once had and now no longer have. Those outcasts would form together in bands of, of others. It was the fellowship of misery. And those Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles, if you were a leper, you didn't care any longer about the distinction that once had separated you. You have now been united in the commonality of suffering. And so each of them had now lost their lives and were waiting to die. And here the ten of them were together as Jesus now goes by. And suddenly now they cry out upon the mercy of God. Just mercy. God, have, have mercy on us. Lord, Jesus, Master, would you just have mercy on our suffering? We are, we are suffering on every level. We are suffering emotionally, physically. We are suffering. Have mercy on us. And so when he saw them, verse 14, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were what? They were cleansed. And so here you see that they had an intersection between sight and faith. Jesus told them, Okay, you have leprosy, just go show yourselves to the priests in Jerusalem. Now, in their hearts, they might have asked, you know, why do you want us to go show ourselves to the priests in, in Jerusalem? They're going to tell us that we're lepers. We already know that we're, we're lepers. See, we're lepers. Why, why do we need to go and present ourselves to, to the priests? That doesn't make any sense. If you had given us a remedy, if you had told us to go and to do something that, that, that would heal us, that would make sense. We, we would be willing to do that. But just go, just go show ourselves to the priests in Jerusalem, it doesn't make sense. And there came the intersection. Do you trust God? Do you put your faith in God and obey? You see, obedience is the demonstration of faith. It's the outward manifestation that you... You actually believe. By what? By doing what God says. That's the demonstration to your faith. Or do you live within the realm of what you understand? Live in the logical world of walking by sight. So they attached themselves by faith to Christ. They believed what he said. And they started to, to walk towards Jerusalem now. And as they went, it says, that they were then cleansed. I want to see the video clip when I get to heaven of this. I, want, I have so many questions about this, uh, you know, as, as they just start walking along and suddenly, you know, did their fingers start growing back and their skin start changing and everything that had been lost to leprosy is suddenly now being restored in their life. And that's, and that's the physical manifestation of this miracle. Do you recognize that every single one of us are spiritual lepers? 
you realize that every single one of us had to attach ourselves to Christ? When we got saved, we, we believed we were a sinner and that we needed a Savior, and we attached ourselves with Christ. And then as we walk with Christ, what happens? We now are sanctified. We are now restored. Everything that sin has damaged and destroyed and twisted in our lives is now being restored. As what? As we just walk with the Lord. As we just now move in obedience to him. Notice that, that their healing was not an instantaneous healing and touch. It could have been, but it wasn't. It was now in obedience, in progression, as they walked, they were made whole. And that's exactly who we are. We are now in the process of sanctification as God is busy restoring everything that sin has crippled in our lives. And so they come to this spectacular realization that, that their life has just been handed back to them. That their life has just been handed back to them. And so they had been told, go show yourself to the priest. But there is one leper who, who is so thankful, who is so overwhelmed that, that now he needs to pause that instruction and he needs to run back to the Lord to just simply say thank you. And one of them, verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with what kind of a voice? A loud voice. He glorified God. And he fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Oh, can you see the overflow of thanksgiving in his heart? How do you thank somebody who gives you back everything that you've lost? How do you thank God for a restored marriage? How do you thank God for restored fellowship with your children, with, with loved ones who gives you back your health when once it had been lost? How, how do you thank somebody who gives you your life back? And there he is on his face. There's an old expression that says that you never really appreciate what you have until, until you lose it. But to lose it and to realize how much you had, and then to have it given all back to you again, is the sweetness of the soul, is a restoration of the power of God in the person's life. And he falls down with incredible thanksgiving on his face before the Lord, giving him thanks. And it says that he was a Samaritan. Now remember that the Samaritans and the Jews have nothing to do with one another. But I want you to know that he never gave it a thought. That his love and gratitude and thanksgiving shattered every single barrier that, uh, that man makes, that man devises. And, and there he was in just a state of grace, pouring out his thanksgiving before the Lord. In verse 17, so Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? You see, the responsibility of God's people is to give glory to God. 
The nation of Israel was to be a shining light to the rest of the nations uh, of glorifying God and pointing all people to God. And <laughs> here was a Samaritan now <laughs> giving glory to God. And Jesus is asking, where are my people that are supposed to be bringing glory to me? Uh, But in verse 19, and he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith, your connection to me by faith. And we see that there was an extra healing here for this intent leper. There was a healing of his heart. You see, the others, they had all had their bodies. They were all physically made whole, but his heart was made whole as he now is rightly connected to to Christ. How many blessings have we received from the Lord that, that we haven't stopped in giving him thanks for? You see, it's interesting the way that the heart can work. It tells us that the heart is desperately wicked among all things. Who can know it? And, and it's interesting that, that so oftentimes we don't stop and give God thanks for, for everything that's going right in our life. We're quick to bring to God the things that aren't going right. Oh, God, you have to help me with this and this and this and this is irritating and I'm mad about this. And we bring that to him. And God's like, okay, yes, but what about all the things that are going right? <laughs> how about all the blessings that I've been giving you and how good I'm taking care of you and all of the, the, the amazing abundance of my love and grace? Well, I can't see that right now because this, this, and this aren't right. And, and you know how oftentimes we can't see the blessings because we're only focused on the things in our life that aren't perfect. And how many of our prayers are focused more on, on our problems than on the thanksgiving for all of the things that aren't problems in our life? How many things are truly going right? And you see, we're always going to have things that aren't going right. And God wants us to bring those petitions. But he also wants us to keep it balanced and to remember the incredible number of things that he has blessed you with. And then when you stop and measure the things that aren't going right in your life compared to the things that, that he has given you in your life, it might change the way that we pray just a little bit. May we be the one in ten that leper that just stops and says, thank you, God. Thank you, God. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a minute to verse 3, where, where Jesus now says, take heed to yourselves. And, and here we see, whenever Jesus is telling us to take heed, it's a warning. He's telling us that there is a, a misunderstanding, a misconception, or a danger that you need to be aware of, that I need to be aware of. And so, you know, we have warnings from friends. Friends can give us warnings and parents can give us warnings and, and people can give us warnings. But when God gives us a warning, we would be wise to take that warning seriously. When God, when God says, hey, I want to tell you something here that's really uh, important. And, and it's interesting that Jesus will say, take heed, or he'll say, you know, most assuredly, verily, verily, I say unto you, and, you know, this is what the world thinks, and this is what a common opinion is, but this is what the truth is on this. And so be careful not to buy into this over here, because this is the truth. And Jesus warns us about so many things. 
But probably the chief thing that he warns us about is what happens after you take your last breath. What happens after a person takes their last breath? And how do you know what happens after a person takes your last breath? There's a lot of opinions on what happens after you take your last breath. A lot of opinions in the world. A lot of people believe different things out there on what happens. Some people believe that when you take your last breath, that's, that's it. And there is just, you are just dead and you're gone and the soul is annihilated at that point, soul annihilation. You just live, you die, and there is nothing after that. And there are many people who believe that this is all there is. There are many people who believe that when you die, you get to come back and try this all over again. And you get to keep on coming back and coming back. And, you know, and if you weren't very good, you come back as a turtle. You know, if you were good and, and you did better, you might be a monkey, you know. And so depending on the quality of your life and what you lived is where you're going to be on this wheel. And you keep on learning until finally you learn all of the things. And, and they believe this. And listen to me, there are millions of people who believe that. Millions of people who believe that. Other people believe that, uh, that once you die, that you're going to continue to grow. And then you become God. And then you have your own, your own existence, your own creation, where you're God and the God within you. You release the God that's within you. And, and you are God. And this, and this is taught. And people believe this. So the question is, what, what do you believe? And how do you know what you believe? Jesus warned of the reality of what happens when a person dies. There is Hades, and the Hades has its two compartments, and people who die in faith are in one place, and people who die outside of faith, separated from God, that they will be eternally separated from God. And he says, and I want you to know the reality of these things. He says that the kingdom of God is now being offered and you're being invited to enter in. But the only way to enter into this eternal life is, is, is that you have to be born into it. He said in the same way that you had a physical birth, the only way you can get into this life here is you had a physical birth. At some point, physical life comes by physical birth. He says spiritual life comes by spiritual birth. You can't have spiritual life without spiritual birth. Now, spiritual life and spiritual death. Death means separation, and life means connection. That's what those words mean in the, the original language. And so we were born dead to God. We were born separated from God. What separates us? from God is sin. Sin is what separates us. And so we need to be made alive. We need to come out of death and made alive. That experience of dealing with the sin, removing the sin out of a person's life so they can now can be connected to God, that's referred to as being born again, a second time, a spiritual birth. And so when you hear the phrase born again Christian, I want you to know every Christian is born again. There's no way to be a Christian without being a born again Christian because Jesus said that you cannot have spiritual life unless you're born again. And so the born again experience means that you recognize that you've got sin that separates you, your soul, from God and that you need to be connected to God. If you die separated from God, that condition becomes permanent. That becomes eternal. 
But Christ came to do what? To remove the sin that separates you so you can now be connected to God and that connection and removal of sin in Christ is called being born again. And he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, most assuredly, I say unto you, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, and that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And don't marvel that I say this to you. And today the question is this. God's been pursuing you your whole life. And God is wanting to connect with you. He's wanting you to recognize that you've got sin that separates you and Christ came to remove that from you and you asking Christ to be your savior and to pull that sin out of your life and he takes it and pays the penalty and now you are connected to God. The Holy Spirit is then placed inside of you and takes up residency inside of you and now you are a child of God forever. That's an eternal relationship. Your eternal relationship with, with God doesn't begin once you get to heaven. It begins the minute that he places his spirit inside of your soul. And you are connected to God and you are born again. You can come to as many church services as you want. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards. You can sing every single worship song that, that there is. And none of that knowledge will do you any good if you're not connected to God by being born again. It's that simple. And Jesus says, you can trust me on this. You can believe me on this. He says, and I will demonstrate it. I will go into the grave. I will spend three days there, and then I will rise back up again to verify that these things are true, that I have the power over life and death. I want you to know that nobody else has ever gone into the grave and come back out to verify their belief system and to tell you that those things are true. But Jesus not only taught it, not only rose others from the dead, he went into the grave himself, and he conquered grave, and he came up. And I want you to know that, that his arms are open to you. Why? God wills that none should perish. The parables about the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go and to get the one, he's leaving the 99 to come and to get you today. And as that widow searched frantically for that lost coin, the thoroughness he has been chasing after you and, and searching for your heart to come and to be connected with God. And as the father ran to the son that was restored in relationship and communion, so the father is seeking to run to you today. But you have to ask him to do it. You have to come to your senses that I'm a sinner separated from God and I need a Savior and, and believe. And how do you demonstrate that you believe? By obeying. By taking that action, by taking that step and by journeying towards God. And that's the demonstration of your faith. And today the Lord is asking you to now put your faith to your feet and to come and to receive that gift of salvation. And if today you are disconnected from God by in sin, then today is the day. And he says that tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And to make sure that you use the time that you've been given to secure your eternal destination, your eternal salvation. And so the Father's heart is wide open. 
He's been chasing after you. He loves you. He cares about you. He can't bear the thought of being separated from you for all eternity. And now he's asking you to come and to receive that gift of salvation, that gift of life, that gift of connection to the Father. And so if that's you, I'm going to invite you to come up to the front. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. I can't pray the prayer for you, but I can lead you in the prayer. And you direct it to the Father, and that is the invitation of the Savior into your life. And that's what being born again means. It means new life in Christ. If that's you, and if you understand how much God loves you and how much he can't live without you, doesn't want to live without you, then now is your time to just stand up to your feet and come forward. We're going to worship, and as we worship, this is your time now to respond to that incredible love of God. So stand up, say yes to Jesus, and come to him, and come now. Won't you hear the Praise Spirit call? Praise God, you come. Come just as you are. Come right to the front. Praise God, yes. Come and live forever. Come just as you are. Won't you hear the Spirit call? Lord, come just as you are. Don't say no to God. Say yes to God. Say yes to Jesus. Come and receive receive your salvation. And come and live forever, life everlasting. Don't fight the spirit, come. Straight for today, taste the living water. No one else can do this for you. Your friends can't. Your family can't. And no one but you. You have to do this. So stand and come. Strength for today. Taste the living water. And never thirst again. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. But I can't pray it for you. I can only give you the words. But the God that made you has been awaiting your entire life to just remove every sin you've ever committed, to impart his Holy Spirit inside of you, and to make you his child, connected to him for all eternity. And so just... And pray this and direct it to God and repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm a sinner. Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm a sinner. That I have not lived a perfect life. I have not lived a perfect life. And Jesus, I believe that you died. Jesus, I believe that you died. You were buried. That you were buried. That you rose again. That you rose again. And that you've ascended into heaven. Jesus, I invite you into my heart. 
to be my Lord and Savior. And thank you for forgiving me of all of my sins. Thank you for sealing me with your Holy Spirit. And thank you for writing my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I thank you that I am now your child for all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. And come here, my brother, and God bless you. And I'm going to have you head right through those doors right there, and they got some materials for you. Welcome into the kingdom. Woo-hoo!